Hey everybody, what's going on? It's Optimus, your host of the Retro Futurist Culture Podcast. We're coming in with another great episode on Ruminations Radio Network. I have a special guest, my buddy Duke. We are going to be talking about the 2002 movie Minority Report based on the Philip K. Dick story. We are really excited to get into this today. Duke, how are you doing? I am doing fantastic, sir. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, my allergies are killing me, but other than that, everything is is good. And uh, I'm enjoying. I'm really enjoying breaking down some of these uh, film and anime works with you. It's been a lot of fun. I can't wait to get into to this one in particular. We both uh, we both kind of giggled like little schoolgirls when we thought about <laughs> talking <Yeah>. about this. <laughs> <laughs> um. So. Um, Let's talk about so Minority Report 2002 movie came out directed by Steven Spielberg starring Tom Cruise. You may or may not know who Tom Cruise is out in the I, I who am I kidding? Everybody knows who Tom Cruise <laughs> is, right? Um, I would hope so. <laughs> the original short story was from 1956, written by Philip K. Dick. The movie is a little bit different, and um, it, it's always I think for the best when you're at adapting adapting a short story novella novel i mean you can't do a direct adaptation of a book to a film because the mediums are totally different like it would be it would be ridiculous um and i'm glad that they that some of the changes i think are better for it in the movie not that there was anything wrong with philip k dick's original story it worked in print but i think that the movie version um allowed them some freedom to do some fun stuff and um before we get into the story i mean the one thing i really enjoyed i think that spielberg captured almost more than any other philip k dick adapt adaptation why do i keep saying that word weird um (laughs) is like the paranoia oh yeah he really uh i mean this is such a suspenseful movie um and i remember first time watching it i had no clue where any of this was going i hadn't read the short story either uh, so the whole concept itself felt new and fresh. Yeah. What did you, so um, I, I got to see, I got to see this in the theater and uh, I really enjoyed it. I was really, really liked where they were going with technology and it seems like we're still not quite there, but we're close. Like what yeah. I mean by that is the, the, the haptic feedback, like almost like holographic computer screens where he's wearing those gloves and he's moving the data around and then he can turn his hands and it's almost like the the second mouse button, you know, to get into the contextual right. menu. I was like, oh man, that is, that is cool. Is there, I'm, I'm quite, I'm so, you know, burned out on, on IT. I don't know if there's anything <laughs> like that yet. I mean, I know we've got VR and some of the VR headsets have some gloves. Are we there yet? We're not quite there yet. I mean, we're at the point where uh, you have full body VR costumes and you have a little bit of feedback from um, various uh, motion capture suits that you could wear. Uh, You probably see with things like the Oculus Rift um, that you have these like they're like wands Um, and that generally speaking controls things, but not to the precise nature that you have. basically a holographic screen in front of you and it's picking up exactly how you're typing. Now, um, I know Microsoft has made augmented reality their new priority. Um, Apple is thinking the same thing. Uh, It seems the consensus is is that 
after smartphones, what's the next big killer app? And that's probably going to be augmented reality. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's going to get us closer to that. Um, speaking of augmented reality, uh, the film itself. So um, like I said, I saw it in the theater. You saw it later via rental. Um, let's get into that story a little bit. So um, it's April 2054. Washington, D.C. is using a prototype pre-crime police department that prevents murders via three clairvoyant humans, which they call precogs that are attached to a computer. And they can, um, you know, they're seeing the future. They can pre-visualize intentions, uh, crimes of extreme emotion and violence. Um, Would-be murderers are then imprisoned in a benevolent virtual reality state. Almost all premeditated first-degree murder has ceased and people have got the message. However, spontaneous crimes of passion are still problematic. The police have limited time to intercept the killer. The federal government is on the verge of adapting this controversial program nationwide. Our main character, John Anderton, played by Tom Cruise. He was a former police officer. His son disappeared uh, in a tragic uh, kidnapping, and he has separated from his wife. And he's become kind of a drug addict, but he still works in the pre-crime unit. (laughs) Apparently they don't do drug tests in the future. Right. Um, The U.S. Department of Justice uh, is investigating the pre-crime. That character's name is Danny Whitwer, as played by Colin Farrell. And they are auditing the program to see, like, if there's any flaws in the system, basically. Um, Yeah. During this audit, the precogs generate a new prediction stating that Anderton will actually murder a man he doesn't even know named Leo Crow in 36 hours. And that begins the chase. Um, Anderton flees the area. Whitwer begins a manhunt. Anderton seeks the advice of Dr. Iris, who created the pre-crime technology. She reveals to him that sometimes one of the precogs, usually Agatha, who's the female, there's one female and then the twin males, has a different vision than the other two, a minority report instead of a majority report of a possible alternate future. Ooh, alternate future timelines. This is perfect for retro futures culture. This has been <laughs> kept a secret as it would damage the system's credibility. Anderton resolves to recover the minority report to prove his innocence. One of the things I find it interesting about the, the story here is at one point he is in the movie, he is really into the pre-crime. And um, when Danny Whitwer is investigating it, you know, there's a um, a murder that goes live earlier before Anderton's and the precogs, when they sense a murder, this machine encodes the murders, uh, the victim and the perpetrator's names on these like, oh, just, they're oak. See, what kind of wood is that that they're writing in? And, and these balls drop out of this device. And then uh, Whitwer catches it and Anderton says... Well, how did you know it was going to drop to the ground? And or how did why why did you catch it? And he said because it was going to drop to the ground. And Anderton basically says that's pre-crime right there. And it's really interesting because as the film goes on in the next thirty minutes, Anderton's tone changes when the pre-crime <laughs> turns turns on him. And that's again yeah. that Philip K. Dick kind of paranoia. So uh, he has to go on the run, and then oh god, this is the part you and I were talking about this on. Uh, on Xbox Live uh, yeah. a little ways back. Um, 
so in the future, everybody's ID'd by their by their eyes with a retina scan everywhere. That's how you get in and out of buildings. And there's like targeted advertising towards you. Like almost like they predicted in this movie, kind of like now. I'm sure right now, because I'm talking about this movie and my cell phone is in the vicinity, I'm going to get a billion ads for Minority Report Blu-ray that I already own. But it'll come oh, up totally. on my phone and all these other apps, right? Or Tom Cruise or something. Yeah. Uh, but at, in this movie, they did it. They did it by your retinas and like whatever you see, it'll it'll say your name. It's like you want to buy this. <laughs> yeah. So it has. Uh, I mean, that's biometric data right there. So back in two thousand and two, uh, Spielberg was already uh, pretty prescient about this. Um, of course, uh, in pre production, he did actually consult with a lot of scientists because his goal was to make this sort of as accurate of a near future prediction as he could get. That's crazy. He, I mean, he's always done his homework, so to speak, on all his films. Like he's uh, very just studious, studious. <laughs> and he really, really wants to get things done well. He's very, you know, he really puts the work in. Um, one of the other things I noticed about the movie, and this also lends to that, Philip K. Dick Paranoia is the cinematography was by Janice Kaminsky, who Spielberg loves, but the lighting and stuff at times, you're just like, it's kind of like when you have one of those bad dreams and you can't see everything, mm-hmm. the whole movie kind of has that look at times and it, it really, uh, it really works for the film. So he has to get his eyes replaced and he goes to a black market doctor to get some new eyes, uh, Played wonderfully by uh, Peter Stormare, uh, who's one of my favorite lesser-known actors. What is he? What else is he? Be? I, I saw him and I was like, God, looks familiar, but I can't remember from what. <sighs> you know, what's going to be really sad is uh, right at this moment, I don't recall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sounds like you need to go to Total Recall. Yes, yes, I do have my memory refreshed. Well, actually, um, I am thinking that he was in one of the Command and Conquer games. Actually, um, oh, okay, so maybe a uh, interesting. Yeah, he's done, he's done a lot of things. He he usually plays similar character types to to what was uh, being portrayed there. Right, sort the of, sketchy. He's sketchy. sort of a sketchy guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see, Anderton with his new old eyes from somebody else he returns to pre-crime he kidnaps agatha the the female precog who has the the most um clairvoyant capabilities um shuts down the system because the precogs operate sort of as a group mind uh anderton takes agatha to a hacker who's might have been the guy that helped him develop the software in the first place to extract the minority report of Leo Crow, but none exists. Instead, Agatha shows him an image of murder of Anne Lively, who is Agatha's mom, a woman who was drowned by a hooded figure five years prior. They end up, Anderton takes Agatha to Crow's hotel room because in the original vision, he knows where that is. And they track it down. Um, and when he gets in there, and this is, this is, this is a really neat, they, part and i love the way they set this up because anderson's like why would i kill a man i don't even know but when they get to this room and they get inside and they finally find the right room there's tons of photos of missing children including a photo of anderton's son and that sends him over the edge it's it's i mean that's one of those things that a good screenplay does it told you that from the beginning crime's a passion 
yeah. but you're not paying attention to that because you're like, what's going on here? And then, so a crime of passion would be when you find out you found the guy that may have kidnapped and later murdered your son after they torture him or whatever kind of disgusting things they do to him. I mean, I, I would be pretty pissed too. I'd probably beat the shit out of the guy with my own hands, but <laughs> <laughs> gets a little weirder. So uh, major spoilers. If you have not seen this movie and you're listening to this podcast, you need to just stop right now, push pause, go rent the movie uh, or watch it on YouTube or f- find find the movie somewhere, digital distribution. It may be on Disney plus at some point. It's a 20th century Fox movie DreamWorks, oh. but, but yeah. for now I don't think it is, but it may be soon, but anyway, get out there or get the Blu-ray. I, I have it on Blu-ray. Anyway, watch the movie. Cause we're going to get into some major spoilers. Now he goes to kill the guy. And then the guy says, or he stops because Agatha tells him you have a choice. Like you don't have to follow your vision. She's basically, you know, recounting to him that you can change the future. You can change these timelines. And so he doesn't. And the guy says, no, you got to kill me. He says, the guy says, my family will be safe only if you kill me. And that's when, you know, things are a little, there's some puppet master behind the scenes running this whole thing. And that's mm-hmm. how most of the, most of the great Philip K. Dick stories are, right? There's always, there's always somebody behind all of it. The book is, uh, is a little is actually quite different in that regard or it, it's a novella but right. yeah um before we get let's let's kind of run through well you know what maybe now this part in the in the novella it's been a long time i think i read it like for when it when i first saw the movie so almost 20 years ago was when i read the the short story mm-hmm. because they didn't have this crow crow was in the novella or no it was a different He's, character it, it was a completely different character it was actually um a general in the federal military um uh, kaplan was his name was the one that anderton was predicted to kill and of course it's when they did come face to face it was a sort of the same exchange why would i kill you sort of thing um but at the same time, Kaplan was manipulating things behind the scenes because this general was the one who wanted uh, Whitworth to go there. Basically, the goal was to um, take the pre-crime division from pre-crime and give it to the military. Ah, so different, but kind of, kind of a little similar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, so in this scene, Anderton asked Crow. Crow's like, you got to kill me. He's like, that's only my family. And Anderson's like, no, I'm not going to kill you. And then Crow grabs the gun and pulls the trigger, killing himself. And Anderton flees to his ex-wife's house, Laura's house with Agatha. Um, They learn that Anne Lively was Agatha's drug-addicted mother who sold her to pre-crime. And then Lively silvered up and attempted to reclaim Agatha, but was murdered. Anderton realizes he's being targeted for knowing about Lively's existence and her connection to Agatha. Danny Whitweir, studying Crow's death, suspects Anderton is being framed. He examines the footage of Lively's murder and finds there were two attempts on her life. This is pretty cool. The first having been stopped by a pre-crime, but the second occurring minutes later having succeeded. And the movie explains because you see the water ripples yeah. and one murder go out and one other murder there rippling in or something and that's where we find out who the real puppet master is Whitweir reports this to the director and founder of pre-crime lamar burgess who's played magnificently by max von saito i mean that guy has been in every great sci-fi i mean he's been in everything he's been in star wars he's been in conan the barbarian i mean he's been in all kinds of stuff (laughs) 
uh, sh- um, uh, Shutter Island. Yeah, Shutter Island. Yeah, he's just he's just a great character actor. Burgess responds by killing Whitwer using Adderton's gun. With the precog still offline, the murder's undetected. Laura had earlier called Burgess, revealed Anderson's with her. Anderton's captured, accused of both murders, and imprisoned after being fitted with a brain device that puts him in a dreamlike sleep. Okay, this is really interesting. I don't know if you saw the video I sent you where there's another theory about how this movie ends. Um, we're going to get into that when we go through like how the movie ends if you're just watching it. And then, Duke, I want to talk to you about that video after we get through the end of this because I found that completely fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> they put him in the the what do they call it thing a crown it's like a crown and it knocks you halo out. a halo that's what it is a halo uh agatha's reconnected the pre-crime system while attempting to comfort laura burgess accidentally reveals himself as lively's murderer laura frees anderton who then exposes Burgess at a pre-crime celebratory banquet, because that's when they were going to go nationwide, playing the video of Agatha's vision of Burgess killing Lively. A new report is generated at pre-crime, indicating that Burgess will kill Anderton. And in a conversation with Anderton, Burgess admits pre-crime could not function without Agatha. He killed Lively following an actual attempt on her life that he had arranged. Knowing that the murder would appear as an echo within the pre-crime system and be ignored, Anderton points out, the dilemma Burgess now faces, he can kill Anderton and validate pre-crime at the cost of his own life, or he can spare Anderton and allow the program to be discredited and shut down. The flaw in the system, Anderton notes, is that people can change their future once they become aware of it. Burgess commits suicide. Afterwards, the pre-crime system is shut down. All prisoners are pardoned and released. Although many remain under police surveillance for years, Anderton and Laura reconcile and prepare for the birth of a new child, and the precogs are sent away to an undisclosed location to live their lives in peace. Uh, and this is this is the part where after I watched that video, I couldn't get it out of my mind, because this is again a very Philip K. Dick sort of thing that would not happen. So let's rewind to the part where they put the halo on Anderton, right? Because what yeah. we just, what I just read you was like, this is the most perfectest, happiest ending that could ever be lined up, right? Everything, Almost. everything, well, everything is pretty much resolved in a nice and tidy way. Almost. The, the Almost. only thing that, so I read that uh, some critics who kind of lent, uh, leaned towards this said it, it isn't totally the perfect ending because, um, as the guy says, uh, it, your wildest dreams comes true. Uh, the entire focal point for why John Anderton got into pre-crime um, and then killed Leo Crow is his son. His son doesn't come back to him. Well, tr- well, true. That would be just shenanigans. If that would have happened, that would I would have probably walked out of the theater. <laughs> that would have been ridiculous, right? Yeah. But so, um, but this other theory is that the moment Anderton gets captured with the halo, everything else we're seeing in the movie is Anderton's like dream state while he's in the like VR prison. Like he's dreaming of that, that that's what he wants to happen. But really what happens is he gets captured. Pre-crime goes nationwide and bird just wins. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting theory. I don't think it's accurate because Spielberg at the end of the day, um, his movies don't go that twisted. He usually has, 
some form of resolution to things happening. So if things ended right there, then we never know how John was framed. Uh, we, we never, there's a lot of unanswered questions that happen and just not, not to put down Hollywood movies in general, but usually Hollywood movies, they have a specific formula that they're following. And as uh, Anderton is the hero, the hero needs to win. And that felt like it granted. Yeah. I would agree too, that the ending was a little forced in, in a, in a happy ending sort of way. Everything went as it should. Um, so yeah, I, I can see why some people would think that. Well, the thing I thought the most interesting after I, you know, saw this theory, watched the video and the guy really, really picks apart these last parts of the movie. Like how did Anderson's wife get one of those eyes? Like he lost one down the sewer and the other one he used at the prison probably didn't have it. And then she also has his gun. There's just so many things that don't quite line up. I think it's almost like total recall. You can almost make an argument for either one of these endings being right. Yeah, I really think that it, it's all. Uh, but after I saw that theory, I was like, well, I don't know how I never thought of that. I was like, that's amazing. I always thought as much as I love this movie, I always thought the ending was a little hinky in the fact that everything is all tidied up nice and tidy but that's also a very spielberg thing like you were saying like i can't think of a spielberg movie that has like a really sad ending yeah i was trying to think of it i mean gosh i think even ai which felt like one of his saddest movies kind of resolved i mean the aliens discovered him and stuff right that was kind of happy (laughs) (laughs) it's been a long time since i've seen that movie yeah. But anyway, so um, let's talk about, so that's that's where the film ends. Let's talk about, since you're a lot more familiar and have reread it recently, let's talk about how the original short story by Philip K. Dick, what happens there. Um, but before we do that, I want to take a quick pause. Hey, this is Charlie, Triple C, from Brevity Box, a new and interesting podcast from the Ruminations Radio Network. If you're a fan of podcasts, we have a lot of great content to offer. Come check out our diverse group of podcasts and hosts at ruminationsradionetwork.com. And welcome back, everybody, to the Retro Futurist Podcast. I have with me Duke here. We're discussing Minority Report. We've discussed the film, and now we're going to get into the original short story by Philip K. Dick. So, Duke, what um, the short story is quite different near the end, and you would you were alluding to it earlier that it's more about the military getting involved in the pre-crime instead of like nationwide police forces. Yeah. There. So um, in terms of themes, the, the movie and the book are the same basically and what they're examining, um, how it goes about that is where things are different. Uh, Philip K. Dick focuses a lot more mission and uh, the idea of free will versus determinism. Uh, and there are some changes that he made that, or not he, I'm sorry, <laughs> that Spielberg made that would make uh, Dick's interpret or Dick's story um, not match up at all. So the first thing is the precogs in the book are basically uh, disabled individuals their bodies completely wasted away their heads are massively enlarged but the majority of what's in there in terms of brain mass is what allows them to see the future so uh, there is no kidnapping of a precog uh, anderton does go to them 
all three of them. Um, but he doesn't leave with any of them. So the whole plot line following Agatha's life, you know, so she has that happy ending with her brothers and stuff that that never happened. Uh, John and his wife are together um, at the beginning of the story. And then, of course, at the end, but it doesn't have that sort of totally happy ending. Uh, they end up exiled to a space colony. Um, <laughs> Would and, it be and, LV426? <laughs> that, would, that would be perfect. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that would be horrible. <laughs> the insight, if, you, if you're not familiar with LV426, you need to go watch the 1986 movie Aliens. Uh, anyway. <laughs> um so at the end of the short story, they're exiled to a, a colony. A space colony. Yeah. And yeah. so that, that means that the entire world is basically different because you have this world where there's a bunch of different space colonies. The nations as we know it are not the same. It seems like the United States is split into different portions. Um, so it's – it's. Uh, very that's another, that way. That's another Philip K. Dick sort of thing. I mean he did the same thing in Man in the High Castle. Right, right. Where we had we had the alternate future where where the uh, Germans won World War Two, and they had like the entire East Coast of the United States, like from east almost to the Midwest, and then the Japanese had the West Coast, and the only free land is like the mid the Midwest through Texas. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a very Philip K. Dick thing. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I want to stop and say that I feel that the film does a better job of both introducing to the average person the idea of uh, precognition and, you know, metaphysics, a bit of philosophy there, really. Uh, whereas Dick's is, is more for someone who's uh, familiar with it. Um, because he goes, he goes into a little different way in how he treats it. In the movie, they tell Anderton that he does not have a minority report. Uh, in the book, he actually has three possible minority reports um based upon his choices so he could choose different things and these created um so these all have create different timelines different pathways for him to move through uh the movie also now granted uh the book was written in 1956 but in 1956 computers using punch cards which is what they are in the book isn't all that advanced. Uh, Spielberg takes us really far into the future and really explores mm. what can happen with technology. I mean, you had self-driving cars in the movie, <laughs> and here we are today. <laughs> right, self-driving cars. Yeah, I really liked the, like I said, the the holographic haptic feedback computer designs. Um, almost almost an evolution of the uh, investigative computer from Blade Runner where he can look in the photos and like go into 3D space. They can do in Minority Port with, with like the video recordings they have from the precogs where he's like zooming in and rotating around and he's like, what building is that? And they're trying to get different camera angles. That's That was all really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, the technology, uh, that's another thing Spielberg's good at. And, and you had mentioned it earlier. He was, he uh, talked to a lot of tech industry people to kind of help predict that. And it and it's, uh, I mean, the movie takes place, I think, 20, 
what did I say? 2056 is when the story takes place. 2054. They should have just done 2056 because the book was written in 1956. That would have been a neat little uh, oh, yeah. tie-in. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but the, the main the main the main uh, theme in the movie is that classical philosophical debate covered by Rush: free will versus determination, um, involuntary commitment, the nature of political and legal systems in a highly technologically advanced society. That's where we are right now, people. And the rights <laughs> of privacy in a media-dominated world. That is also exactly what's going on right now. Oh yeah. I mean, that's the one thing I noticed when watching this. I was like, holy crap, this is like, this predicted the massive amount of social media dominated world we live in where, I mean, there are some people that social media runs their life and, oh, and yeah. this movie predicted it in a way that it's like, man, it's, it's crazy. I, I'd have never, you could have asked 15 year old me out and never known that. <laughs> yeah. The same here. What about, uh, so what did you think about, other than the, uh, we had the music by John Williams. That was great too. That's what I was going to talk about. And originally in development, um, you know, cause it's an adaptation from that screenplay or from the short story into a screenplay. Um, one of the original versions of this, and I brought this up on the, uh, 19 or total recall 1990 episode is originally they were going to use this short story as a springboard to create a sequel to Total Recall with the precogs being the mutants on Mars after Mars was turned into a, a livable place. That could still be really fun. I still wouldn't mind if they did something like that. <laughs> and I think they could make it work. Um, and doing so, they could even borrow some from the book because here we have space colonies. Um, and so... Anderton could be living on the first space colony uh, on Mars, uh, where these mutants are. Yeah, it would be interesting. I, th I think if somebody was really uh, hell bent on making it work, they could get butter and a shoehorn, get this, <laughs> get this working with that. Yeah. What other influences did you see coming out of this movie, or have you seen influence other other films or books or games that you've been into? Oh. You know, the uh, the walking spiders thing, I thought, uh, was a bit far-fetched. I was thinking of how, if we're there yet. But then I remembered that uh, probably a decade ago now, DARPA was working to develop self-healing landmine fields, where if landmine exploded, another one would pop up and move to fill the gap uh, that that last landmine had left. So I was like, oh, okay, well. Walking robot spiders were basically there. Wow. Yeah, those those are I think out of and I would agree with you. In the movie, those are the only things that are almost a little right. far fetched in the concept of the movie because they I mean, move with almost more like an alien kind of a movement. Right. Like they and their legs and stuff. It's like bendable metal, almost like they're uh was it the T one thousand T one thousand from T one thousand Air two, yeah, uh, and then they also are pretty smart in being able to like that, like when he uh, with a little bubble comes out of his uh, mouth and hits the surface, they their AI was smart enough on its own for them all to stop, and I guess they had like a communicated hive network between them, um, and then come back and and look. That's a lot of really advanced uh, artificial intelligence there. 
Mm -hmm. I also noticed when I was watching it that um, besides the tech that we were getting into, but the, the style of the movie, besides being very like cyberpunk and retro future, it's almost like a film noir with that lighting. There's moments mm. of it that are very much like Maltese Falcon, Citizen Kane, like there's some bright, hot, white lights coming through some very dark scenes like the whole oh god the whole scene where he gets his eyes done and he's in that like wrecked apartment and then the spiders come in like that whole scene the lighting in there is is crazy yeah it's like a, it's like a horror film really yeah that's awesome so good there was a game based on the film by treyarch i'm just reading this right now uh, really never, i never played that <laughs> I didn't know it existed. Yeah. I wonder if my buddy Mark worked on it. That might have been before he worked for Treyarch. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. And there was um there was supposed to be a TV series. I do remember I, that being teased, but it yeah. looks like it it made one season. It was picked up by Fox on May 9, 2015. Made his broadcast debut September 21st, 2015 and was canceled by May 13th, 2016. So canceled about 5 years ago on the 13th of this month. And well, so you said Fox, right? They're they're pretty notorious for killing science fiction shows anyway. No, they would never do something like that to a great show. Never, Gosh. not even, not even great shows with Nathan Fillion. They wouldn't even dare. No, no, because they know that. that 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 brings in the big bucks, and <laughs> and if, and and that it's got a cult popularity that will last far longer <laughs> than the actual show did. Right. Uh. <laughs> yeah. All kidding aside. Yeah, we all know poor Firefly. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts on uh, Minority Report, Duke? What is what is your favorite? What's your favorite part of the movie? Oh, um, so the the part that um, this isn't my favorite part, but every time I watch it, I feel exactly the same way. Um, this is this is the gross out part where he's no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I got it. I got to talk about it. He has these ropes to guide him because his eyes are trying to heal uh, towards uh, food in the fridge and first aid. And in both cases, uh, once he gets to the destination, his hands just happen to accidentally hit the wrong thing. So instead of taking the nice new milk and fresh sandwich, he picks up the rotting sandwich with maggots crawling all over it and the rotting milk. And then when he goes to just get some water, you know, to get that terrible flavor out, he drinks out of the biologically contaminated water. <laughs> yeah, that scene is still gross. Um, I think my favorite scene is uh, when he's with Agatha in the mall um, and she's guiding him in real time uh, how to yeah navigate um, yeah the, navigate through that so that they won't that's see like uh and that scene uh only because i've been playing it lately that's like a very metal gear solid moment because he's trying to just evade all, all of the <laughs> cops looking for him and she's like don't move don't move don't move now you know and then she also um she's telling random people in the mall like she tells that woman you know he doesn't love you or whatever yeah. <laughs> it's just oh, like, right what? 
which is interesting because at the at the very beginning, and of course this could be a false narrative, uh, they tell us that the precogs can only see a very dark passion crimes of passion the only thing that they dream about over and over again are these murders but that's definitely not the case with agatha because she can see the future not just of one person but apparently everyone that's around her yeah well and that's what the one woman tells john that she's the she's the key to the whole program she has the most ability and maybe her ability has evolved during the course but it was also making her you know, miserable, those drugs that they had her on. Yeah. And just the, you know, being, I can't even imagine being around people and constantly just knowing everything about them. Oh yeah. I would lose my shit. Yeah. Uh, The difference in the book is, uh, as I said, they're, they're not really people anymore. They're, they're more like vegetables. Um, And so they can see everything but they have no cognitive understanding of it. So it just gets piped to these supercomputers that do the understanding for them. Um, and so there's other organizations that get the other data from them. Yeah. That's crazy. What do you tech wise, where do you, th- how far do you think before we have brain tech interface? <laughs> Oh, man. The big problem with that is any sort of foreign object in your body. Right. Your immune system. Yeah, your immune system is going to try to uh, remove it. Um, So that is actually the big thing uh, that needs to have the scientific breakthrough. I know um, Elon Musk wants to do something with it. I have seen um, documentaries and stuff where, uh, a guy can sort of, um, see sound because he has an implant in his head and kind of like antennas out of it. Um, eye implants and stuff, but yeah, I, I, it's really complicated. I know that there is a, a little bit of an ability to read our alpha, um, and beta is, is alpha and beta brain waves. Um, through sensors on the skin and then have that control something in the computer. But I don't know how far we are there. Right. Um, and what do you feel about, how would you feel if you were arrested for a crime you hadn't committed based on a clairvoyant vision? <laughs> I would uh, immediately think that that is absolute bullshit. Um <laughs> <laughs> especially in the moment and uh and given you know i've, I've read gulag archipelago and, and other um, books dealing with uh fascist totalitarian societies i know that those sort of the societies will create out of thin air crimes just to sort of rubber stamp um your arrest or putting you away in the gulag so right. that would be i'd be thinking that rather than oh yeah sure I'd be like, okay, so that's a great way to sugarcoat what you're doing, which is violating my rights. And it seems like the more technology we create as humans, the less rights we have. I mean, all of our current tech right now, even probably even recording this podcast, somebody's spying on us, whether it's the NSA, the CIA, Chinese secret forces, the KGB. (laughs) I know. Or, Or corporations, too. Yeah, and that's and and 
it's just scary. And it's uh, more and more. And that's the whole theme of this podcast is more and more of these companies want to use that data to make money somehow. And it only helps them. It's not helping. It's not to help mankind. It's yeah. to help them get richer. So it's just interesting that and a, a lot of times these artists, whether they're filmmakers, writers, game designers, you know, they they're reminding us of these messages and some of us are listening, some of us are not. Yeah, I I do have to say again about the technology, um, specifically the way advertising is handled in that minority reports future. I certainly hope we don't get to a point where our biometric data is attached to advertising companies. It's oh my God. Pretty close. I no. bet it's coming. No, <laughs> it's coming. No. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just that's... think, I mean, having worked recently in a field that dealt with it and medical records with EMR, I mean, I don't know. I could see it. I could see somebody selling that. You Gosh. opt into it. You accidentally check a box because you just don't want to read the five thousand pages of text. Yeah, that's when I become Tolkien and become a ludite and live out in the woods. Right. Well, you're welcome to join me in my trip to Costa Rica. <laughs> well, that's better than woods. <laughs> yeah. All right. Do um, you have any final thoughts about Minority Report or the short story, the film? Or any any other sageful words of advice for our listeners here at RFC? Oh, I want to say about the Minority Report's handling of free will versus determinism. And this actually just came to be while we were talking about it. I, I hadn't thought about it until then. Is it really um, a different path if someone else's decisions end up with the same result? And... On top of that, the two crimes of passion that were recorded, um, they weren't committed, but they did both end in a suicide. First, the self-suicide, which confirmed the murder of Leo Crow. Leo Crow kills himself. Uh, and then Lamar Burgess, instead of killing Anderton, kills himself. So you both have suicide That's interjected there. Only if you think that was the real ending. Yes, that's true. Very true. But you, it's still an interesting thought. Is Sure. Yeah. Is that – has the future really changed just because and, a person – if it's the same outcome? Right. And that's one of the reasons why this movie is so fun to talk about and, and re-watch and think about these themes. I That's one of the reasons why we do this show and that's why I love it is thinking about that stuff like what – what makes us human? How how does this all work? How do we make ourselves better? Yeah. Yeah. All right, Duke. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for being on the Retro Futures Culture Podcast. Everybody check out our other shows on Ruminations Radio Network. There's tons of great stuff out there. Thanks again, Mr. Duke. Let's ride on out of here and hope we don't find any of those robotic spiders when we go to bed tonight. Yeehaw! 